Welcome to the Smart Money Tribe podcast. I'm your host, RSF. I'm the founder of smartmoneyafrica.org, a financial education platform tailored to the African millennial woman. But I'm probably best known as the author of two best-selling personal finance books, The Smart Money Woman and The Smart Money Tribe. I love having money conversations that encourage African women to think bigger and become the chief financial officers of their own personal economies. This podcast is a weekly show that will focus on powerful conversations, stories, and practical lessons that teach African millennial women how to make money, keep money, and grow money. Hi, potties. Hope everyone is doing amazing. Who else loves it when their different jobs kind of collide or mesh in a positive way? So I found myself buying Netflix on Bamboo because, you know, Bamboo is sponsoring this podcast and you can buy US stocks on the Bamboo app. And I thought, actually, why not start buying stuff like Netflix, which I need to start investing in because they're investing in African content like the smart money woman. I hope you guys are just as excited as I am. Um, about the show coming to Netflix. Yay! Can't wait. <laughs> anyway, my next guest today is fabulous. Her name is Eniola Mafe. She works at the World Economic Forum and she's such a brilliant babe. You know how much I love those. Eniola is a strategist and international development leader with a track record in facilitating high-level policy dialogue and partnership building to accelerate Africa's transformation agenda. As a project lead for Internet for All, responsible for Africa and the Middle East at the World Economic Forum, Eniola engages governments, institutions, and the private sector in public-private partnership efforts to in order to close the digital divide and increase internet access to millions of people. Prior to the World Economic Forum, she led a $90 million corporate social enterprise for Chevron in Nigeria. She also served as the technical advisor on social investments for the Nigerian government. In 2018, Enyola was named one of OK Africa's 100 women in Africa doing amazing things. This was in 2018. She holds an MA from Georgetown University and a BA from Spelman College. She's a Phi Beta Kappa. I really enjoyed this interview. She has so much insight. I love the way she's developed her career. And I feel like there's so much to learn about, you know, becoming an entrepreneur. Um from Eniola's story and we talk about how we did this mastermind that basically changed our lives. Enjoy! Hi Annie! Hi RSA, how are you doing? I'm doing (laughs) so amazing and I'm so excited that you're going to be a guest on the podcast um, because I've been wanting to interview you for a really long time. And we're finally doing it. So yay. Yay. So guys, Eniola Mafe is like one of those beautiful, super intelligent African women that I have the privilege of knowing. Um, we met first through, I think, Tosin Dorote. 
the ever amazing Tosin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I've basically been trying to be her bestie since. So yeah, I'm such a beg friend. But thank you, Eniola, <laughs> for agreeing to be on the podcast. Eniola is a very intelligent lady. She's an international development strategist at ding, 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 the World Economic Forum. She is their lead for the 2030 Vision Technology and Sustainable Development. She's also been basically helping to co-shape the strategic direction of the forum's thought leadership on the fourth industrial revolution, global commons, and sustainable development. Anyala, please explain what this means to my (laughs) (laughs) What do you do at the World Economic Forum with your big brain? RSA, first off, um, we beg friend each other because I I love everything you do and how you lift and uplift other women in the process. Um, And like, I remember all my pep talks with you. So um, (laughs) we'll we'll talk about those, uh, you know, especially pep talks where it's like, do you know who you are? Like Rafiki, (laughs) like Lion King. Um, You are my Rafiki in that sense. Um, uh, But you're way more, way more gorgeous, way more gorgeous. (laughs) Um, uh, but, but yeah, so yeah, all those wonderful big words that we like to use in this like international development world, but really, really what I do is I advance policy that would be beneficial to ideally for me, at least, um, people who look like me, women, um, black women, um, people who live in and around the, um, equator in developing and emerging countries. Um, and making sure that those um, needs are at the global agenda are being shaped in the, you know, with funding in the millions and even close to billions, um, that there are countries that are thinking around how can we be more equitable with digital access. So basically how we use all of the, you know, great robotics, AI, everything that can actually be harnessed for um, it to actually make a difference for people's lives. So not just AI and machine learning and all these wonderful things like blockchain and um, just just because, but they have to have a value that can enhance the lives of like millions of people, if not billions. Um, and so I feel like I'm kind of playing a little bit of a part there um, to, to do that work, to bring the right people together, to have the, both the conversations and the collective action around that. So that could be, you know, coalitions, it could be actual projects on the ground in particular countries. Um, and also, especially because of my love for Africa and my love for Nigeria, I've been able to um, really tie that into like my own personal passions as well. So I, I kind of feel pretty lucky that I have a, a job that amazing work. is a Exactly. Thank. Yeah. So I feel good about that. Okay. And you're like, so one of the reasons um, that I started this podcast was to show African women like different ways that they can make money or build careers that are financially successful. And, you know, sometimes we see like someone in this really big job or someone who's built this really big business and then we wonder, oh my God, how did they get there? What decisions do they take? Or what decisions do they make to get them to this point? Um, how does someone get to um, have a fancy job at the World Economic Forum? I know you've gone to you, and you're like, you've gone to many schools or 
London Business School, INSEAD, Harvard, Columbia, China, Europe, International Business School, the works. But how did you, how did you basically start this journey? What, did you always want to be in development? Did you always um, want to do impact work? How did you start this? How did you build this career as an intrapreneur? <laughs> Thank you. First off, I am Nigerian, so that's why I'm collecting degrees um, because I would not be my mother's daughter if I didn't do that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so, to be honest with you, um, and the decision to making a career, I feel like it was a combination. I had an idea of certain things that I wanted to feel while working, which was a sense of purpose. I wanted to make money because I didn't like to be poor. Mm. Um, let's be honest. <laughs> and I wanted to feel like every day was a little bit different. So, um, so I didn't, can't really do routine, but I knew I didn't want to be an entrepreneur because I wasn't necessarily built that way. Um, so hence why I guess this term of entrepreneur makes a lot of sense for me. But when I first started out, I just, I was kind of led by those. Like I'm very like, I really want to passionate about what I'm doing. So when I, I graduated from high school and then I did a gap year for one year and traveled for about five and a half months uh, in Australia, I was about maybe like 17, 18. Um, and I backpacked through Australia, New Zealand, Fiji. They kicked us out of Singapore because of <laughs> SARS at the time. Wow. Um, and this was in like 2003, I want to say. So I worked so for, finished, um, for a while. Um, A levels. So was this before mm -hmm. university? So this was before university. In okay. between um, A levels and university, I took a gap year. So I worked for a bit and to be able to earn the money, able to travel. Um, and so, so, so I did five months um, of backpacking. And so I think that was really critical for me because uh, number one, it meant I was, I was. I couldn't, I wouldn't go straight from high school to, from, from A-levels into, into college. And also I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I was trying to give myself a little bit more of like race I... while also speaking to my Nigerian parents, one who has a PhD, the other who has a mechanical, mechanical, uh, uh, master's. So I was like, how do I, I buy time? So that was initially the thinking. And then it actually opened eyes to, the, to this global, I'd always been global, but like this global interactivity. So mm -hmm. um, I saw a lot with how things were interconnected, the experiences of Aborigines or Maoris and self um, and on, around race, around equality, around access, all those things, right? So I think it was the seed that got like that, that was planted started, yeah. during that gap year. And then I went to school at Spelman College, which is a historically black university um, in the States. And so that was interesting because it was all women, all black, uh, generally all black women. And I remember like the first day coming in, our dean had said, look to your left or the right, um, how many of you are, are black? It was like 90%. How many of you are women? It's like 100%. And then how many of you are were top of your class? And it's like, another, you know, eight, 70, 80%. And they would choose like for the next four years, figure out what else makes you special and what's going to be your contribution to this world. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. 
excuse me, ma, um, excuse me, um, me, I'm 19 and me, I'm just trying to catch cruise, but um, <laughs> what is this? So it was just this sense of like, that was already planted in me. So yeah. I think I always knew that whatever I was going to do, it's going to have to have passion. I had to be passionate about global, being a global citizen too. I had to make some money. So I ended up finding myself on Wall Street, which answered the <laughs> second part. Yeah. <laughs> money but it didn't quite answer the the first part first which part. is fully passion so I got half of the you know I got half of the equation right um and um I'm fast forwarding a little bit um because because I think I was just trying to link in why I made the decision for the career and I think yeah. what happens is you sometimes diverge and you explore different parts of whatever your values are. And you come back. And, you, and then you come back. And somehow it converges. And everyone should not be too worried about divergence. But just know that there is, that you have to be deliberate about the convergence. And you test your hypothesis in a sense. And I think that's what my career has ended up doing, which is I ended up finding the, the element I started out with or elements that put me in the right place at the right time, or sometimes even the right place at the not yet time where I was able to take on roles and leadership roles or shape what that would, what the agenda would look like because people hadn't quite figured out um, what it was. So I, I found myself um, with the experience I had from Wall Street was um, after the financial crisis, mm. um, many private sector was like, okay, what's our role in society now? Oh, we've got to figure out this um, corporate social responsibility. And I remember I took um, a job, um, an, an internship actually during my graduate school at Georgetown in DC, in Washington, DC. And um, they had uh, they'd been asking for someone who had private sector experience. And I was like, well, I've worked in private sector. And basically my job was to speak in private sector to private sector people about why they should invest in nonprofit. And I was like, okay, that's that seems like an easy enough role. That ended up that ended up developing into a role to the kinds of roles you probably see now, which is social impact, which is triple bottom line, which is a whole like industry of yes. like corporate social responsibility. But back then it was still kind of slightly fledged, like fledgling and still kind of new um, where if I had to apply for that job now, uh, if I had to have applied to that job these days, I would have had to have so much, you know, um, experience and so many qualifications in the space. But I think there is a thing about being an entrepreneur and, and ties into um, you, your question about um, decisioning is get into emerging areas because then you can be able to have the power to shape some of that agenda um, and step into places where you're not quite sure if it could work or step into a nascent thing or look and have your like you know I kind of had my head on us like oh something <laughs> happening here and I'd like to like figure out and, and be paid to figure it out I love it. But were they, at that time, were those well-paying jobs or was it the sort of thing where you were like, you know, I'll do this because um, it fulfills my desire for impact, even if it doesn't pay as much as a Wall Street job? 
apparently you and my mom have been having conversations because <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the question. So I remember it, uh, the way I remember this in answering your question <laughs> is, <laughs> hey God. So I came out of, uh, gra- uh, out of undergrad uh, working on Wall Street at Merrill. And I will say that I was earning, I don't know, at the time it was like $60,000 or something. I, I felt like a big boy. Hey, gosh, no one could tell me. No, no responsibility. Just you and, and your Just me and my, and the student loans hadn't kicked in at that. So, you know, you just, you're just happy, right? <laughs> um, and I remember after grad school. So mind you, I've gone to school at one of the like top schools, Georgetown. It's not, it, yeah. even though I got a, a scholar, um, half scholarship, like I still had the other half to be paid. Yeah. Right. And so I come out and mind you, I'm still paying my undergrad, like some of my loans for undergrad too. So I remember my mom calls me, she's like, and you're last. So I think I sent her my, um, my, uh, my offer. First off, uh, I would not advise sending your parents, offer to your parents your offer letters ever. No matter how how it is, please, please just keep that one to yourself. Just <laughs> FYI. Don't don't tell don't tell you what I sent you to go and be giving your parents your offer letters. Um, especially ones who have degrees uh, in things <laughs> that you know yeah, investigative degrees. Um, and so she looked at it and she said, wait. So explain this to me, um, Inula. Do you so you went to grad school to earn um, less than what you did in undergrad, Abby? I said, um, well, yes. <laughs> and she said, okay, okay. And then that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> um, and um, and I realized it was a, it was a it, sometimes in in trying to be aligned with your passion. Mm. you're going to have to take that short-term risk. And I, to be honest, I didn't even know how long it would be for me to be earning that much money, um, knowing that I had taken a step aside. But, but I, I see it now, and hindsight is, is, is great. Um, but it did, that, that investment did pay off. But it did take a while, certainly. Yeah. So basically, you felt like you took a step back to take several steps forward in the future. Um, exactly. Because I'm trying to imagine, right, going to all these fancy schools, um, you know, first of all, going to boarding school in England and then moving to America, going to all these fancy schools, getting the Wall Street job and then having to have that conversation with your parents about, you know what, actually, I'd like to try this development stuff. Um, And it's going to be paying slightly less, but this is what I'm passionate about. I can imagine your Nigerian parents being like, ha. So I don't know, you know, how comfortable the dinner conversations following um, you starting that job would have been. They were, they were, um, initially they were not as comfortable. (laughs) Um, And I think one of the things though about my parents is they're a bit more progressive than the usual Nigerians for sure. Mm. Um, And so my mom is also a person who's like, uh, she always kind of approaches things like uh, defend your thesis, 
So if we were able, if we were as kids, my sister and I were able to defend our reasoning behind it and persuade her, then she would kind of give us a little bit of leeway. So I did appreciate that as a parent where, you know, I remember even very, very young, I wanted a Barbie because everything I had had to have educational purposes. Mm -hmm. And she made me go and figure out uh, a proposal to her to get um, two Barbies Mm -hmm. for my birthday and I had to give a full presentation. I found out Barbies have no educational whatsoever. <laughs> and to be honest, I wasn't even that interested in them. But but I think I think that idea of like defending your thesis was really yeah, great. Yeah, it forces you to think. Exactly. Forced me to think and also figure out what is it for me and how well if I can't persuade my mother of like what my um, approaches, how can I persuade anyone else, right? And I so in a yeah. weird way, it was, she was kind of setting me up to to really kind of interrogate what it is that I wanted to do. And I appreciated Why? that. Um, because, yeah, I really did. So what have been your biggest challenges with building a career in this field? Um, the fact that there is literally no roadmap. So I went from a Wall Street career, which is to be honest, very clear. You go from analyst to associate to VP, you either make money or you don't make money. And then you get, you know, certain promotions are based on, on how much money or, or, or you know, um, new accounts and things like that, right? So it was very clear. In this world of uh, international development in like nonprofit CSR, everything is so fuzzy. And that was the biggest challenge was like, literally building a career on my uh, like on my own i went from having a lot of mentors in the space to not really having that many mentors having people who looked like me at all i was always the youngest definitely the only black woman um in meetings where i had feelings of full imposter syndrome mind you right i like blagged my way into this industry (laughs) um like I mean, yes, I got a degree, but like I kind of generally blagged my way into into these roles, um, at least for the first couple of years. Hmm. And um, and there was so much to learn, but it was such a steep learning curve without any of the typical things like mentoring or training, you know, like that. A lot of it I had to pay for myself or cover myself or really just network um, and get to know how this industry worked and how it could work for me and how I could actually affect change. So that's the biggest, those were the biggest challenges for me. And also just not having a lot of people to look up to who look like me, who seem to have been successful doing this. I, I get that. I see that not having a clear roadmap and basically having to figure out your own blueprint yourself. But in figuring that out, like through your career progression, have you been able to negotiate promotions and like increase compensation? Mm, yes, this one. Two, mm. so, I'll tell like one, I will say yes in um, negotiating promotions and increasing conversation. And I also know, um, I think there were two phases in my early part. I was just so happy to be there. And there's yeah. something to be said about working in altruistically um, mm. driven industries and sectors. They will, they will, they will cover you with the excitement of, you know, speaking to a president today or, or, you know, setting up a round table with, 
young uh, young women um, in um, in human rights and all of those. And those things are really great, and they feed your soul. Yeah. But but there's also a a, a struggle I had with asking for what I wanted in an altruistic way, right? Mm-hmm. Because because essentially they're like, well, aren't you just happy with the mission of the work and the vision of the work? I was like, yeah, but my <laughs> landlord um, says that my mission just bounced. So I'm not sure how, you know. Was, <laughs> These bills still got to be paid. Exactly, exactly. And, and so, and not only are bills do, need to be paid, my value here mm. has to be recognized and appreciated. And I understand the constraints because it's, you know, there's funding constraints, there's all of those. So I think when I worked with a nonprofit the first time, I understood because I can kind of see where um, people were earning, definitely earning a little bit more because I came with a lot of experience in private sector, Wall Street, all of those. And I could show that I had um, an income that before that was uh, that required allowed me to negotiate. So I would say number one, I negotiated from the start at the beginning, and I articulated very clearly how I would how I could provide that value and what I was coming in with. That would definitely be the case. And then I also worked on increasing the compensation. Um, I will say that I didn't really push for like the real value. Um, till a little later in my career, like a little later in the majority of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, there was someone who, um, actually it was an ex, who, um, God bless him, and he was really instrumental actually in breaking down for me um, how to negotiate the best way and to look at market comparables, to look at all of these other things, and then to really make a very bold case and to go really high in terms of a number that I was physically scared of. of. Like, scared of. I was like, "Ah, are you serious? They'll they'll fire me. They're like, he's like, no, they won't. They'll just be no or not right now. I was like, okay. So I would I would say that that conversation and those interactions with like people who have a problem negotiating, it, I, I will honestly say it it doubled my income in a very at a very crucial time when either sink or swim, yeah. and it has now supported my income like trajectory mm-hmm. in a way that I think I would have been out of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars um and i love that this has so much effect on you mentally and and also financially i love this so much because you know first of all i my master's is in development economics from um ucl and i remember thinking i'd always been interested in development economics it was something that you know that i loved maybe because i came from nigeria and I mm. always, you know, I was just so interested in development economics. But a lot of the people in my class were very much doing the course because they wanted to go and build wells in Africa or they wanted to, you know, like do like, you know, the development work that requires you to be sweaty and, you know, on the ground and, you know, digging wells and building houses and i just never saw that for myself so Mm. it's always been a little bit tricky even with what i do now 
um, because it looks like, oh, wow, she's, you know, promoting financial literacy for African women. And that's such an altruistic thing. And then, right. but then there's a thing of, should she be charging? Should you, if, if you're supposed to be doing this positive thing, right? Um, so why do you want money for it? But from the very beginning, I was very, very clear about the fact that I wanted, this was something I was passionate about, financial literacy, but I wanted mm-hmm. to do it for, for profit because me, I'm a capitalist and I want, <laughs> I want, you know, development, but I, I feel like there are different ways, you know, to do that. So I can definitely see how it was tricky for you to, to say, well, we're doing all this important work and I want to be focused on the mission, but I don't want to seem like, um, I'm greedy for asking too much. Um, and then there's all, all of this like imposter syndrome that also comes into play Mm -hmm. where you're like, who do I think I am to be asking Mm -hmm. this much money in this space? You know, I don't want to look like I'm great greedy. Do you think that this, um, affects, or this sort of thinking happens to women more than it does to men? Um, yes, yes, <laughs> and yes, um, especially in this space. So I had so many revelations when you were talking um, because, you, you know, you said uh, providing financial literacy and, um, you know, access to African women, right? Yeah. And we don't turn around and ask Bank of America or Wachovia, which mm. is what they're doing, right? To yeah. populations, giving them, we don't say, well, you shouldn't earn money from that. You shouldn't mm. get transaction from that. We don't. Yeah. I think when we start putting labeling on where women or black women or African women are doing this work, then that all automatically becomes this like, no, this would be altruistic. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm providing a phenomenal service. It also, when we know from research, when people pay, even if it's a nominal fee mm. for something, they pay more attention to it. Yeah, I'm ensuring that there's sustainability. So it's not just, I'm going to build a well in Africa, like you said, right? <laughs> it's I'm creating opportunities for people to be able to be self-sustaining, which is what we want. Yeah. And there is a business of development that people forget. Like I, I see it because I operate at these kind of like high levels with, with folks like those numbers are the, the amount of money that goes into the, the development industry. It is an industry it's a business. There are, there are banks, there are securitization, so much involved. I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. in the whole, international monetary and like development system um, that has an, almost nothing to do with altruism because you either get money and the, get, get the returns or you don't. And that's yeah. the it. So I think we shouldn't be, um, especially for those who may be listening to this, who are interested in this world of like development and others, I think you've got to, de- I think we have purposely mystified and i think there's a role for african uh, for women like us to play within this mm. scheme to say no 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 we're not we're mystifying the fact that development is a part of an economy if it, if an economy does not develop um and if populations do not develop we we can't see top line growth so rather than this altruistic approach let's look real business models let's look at real and 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 the people behind it 
are we're not we're not learners. So <laughs> like you've got to pay you got to pay, pay for and, the and compensate yeah. the people who are who are adding value to the fundamental elements of what makes a developed society. Um and that's the thing that I'm really excited about because it's like this stuff is not this stuff is tough. It's mm-hmm. hard. Um and and therefore when I ask for it now, I feel like by virtue of me working with an entity as a African woman who has experience in the U- in Europe, UK, US, multiple countries in Africa, I'm your risk I'm your risk mitigation strategy. <laughs> like you know me being in the meeting you know. when you guys are are asking only right things in English when you're in Senegal and I say mm, they speak Wolof and French we may want to work on translators I'm a risk mitigation strategy for you yeah I can I have a proximity to the issue in a way that you um you know white man from from uh, Norway or or you know Asian man from Singapore will never have to these issues so I so pay my value pay that. my value exactly exactly I love it so let's segue into like the more personal finance questions now um, sure. what did you do with your first paycheck so you get your Girl, first I blew job. it I blew it I blew it <laughs> what did Wait, you like, blow it on what did you blow it on maybe she's and maybe an av- oh you remember a view remember a view oh my god <laughs> you're showing them our age and you're laughing <laughs> gosh i think i bought the bbcu jeans and oh those things god. oh god i remember they were like so expensive they were so expensive but i wanted so badly and i think i actually did spend my first paycheck on a pair of ABC jeans to be fair was, this was in high school right like this was like after high this school was definitely in mm-hmm. yes okay please yes please not now <laughs> but um this was in high school and um i just remember being so broke that month because mm. i don't know what what i i had a very uh, very here and now up to to money we all it did. was here and that is god mm-hmm. so <laughs> I but call the, it the cash flow approach <laughs> <laughs> the cash flow approach i love it so how did you make your first 1 million naira even if you're an international uh, yeah. babe i've been working internationally all this time you know geneva the us all of that um let's just say it's in naira in the naira equivalent and you're yeah, like of course of course, of course. <laughs> how did you how did you make your first 1 million naira? Who? My first 1 million naira. It was actually very interesting. I um did a competition. Um and it was a competition about financial services and like the history of like financial services. So I entered into this uh, kind of jeopardy. Okay. And it was to get um a certain amount of money. It was a, a team and I think we got about $5,000 or something like wow. that. um uh and so i was like look anything i had to be earning money i was doing i was like this noggin of mine this brain of mine that seems <laughs> to work pretty well is going to make it has to make me somebody going through school so i yeah i started making 
um, you know, applying for like scholarships, applying for like competitions, writing essays, things like that. I so that, that was the, that was, I needed to pay for school in the US, which was expensive. My parents had not been sick, had not been, they had not been thinking about US uh, prices of schools in their budgeting. So um, I had to make sure that I was supplanting that with, with my own, um, my own hustle. So that's what I did. I used my noggin because I, I tried to work in a um, in a shoe store, hence what I blew money on um, mm-hmm. for a visa. But I knew I was like this this uh, manual labor thing. I don't think it's my ministry. My calling. So let me just try and see if I can just use my knowledge and, and see if that could be my calling. And that ended up being it. Quick shout out to our sponsors, Bamboo. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that my current obsession is the Bamboo app. Because me, I'm trying to get richer, not borer. And the way the inflation and FX policies are set up in Nigeria, whew, it's become more important to start investing in more dollar-denominated assets. So I'm currently obsessed with Bamboo. This is no joke. Bamboo is an investment platform that gives Africans direct real-time access to invest in or trade in over 3,500 stocks and ETFs listed on the US stock market from their personal devices. Bamboo makes it fast and easy for members to buy stock in companies they like, like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, to name a few. So download the app, guys. This episode of the Smart Money Tribe podcast is powered by Bamboo. I love it. I, 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 it's amazing to be able to use your brain, you know, to make money um, or a skill that you've developed to make money. But so you were making all this money on Wall Street um, and everything. What was your investment strategy or what would you say your investment strategy is now, like how has that Mm. developed? How do you decide what you want to invest in and how? Yeah, good point. So I I came from a history of of my parents are like, they're kind of much more the typical Nigerian conservative investors. So they prefer to invest in like land or or homes or things that they can see, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the, the tendency. So they would just be collecting, trying to like, buy her like buy homes or things like that um and so that's the history i had there's some of them that you know i had a grandparents and i was lucky enough to be privileged there's like you know stock bombs and things and that kind of um ability to do that but i will say that i my financial literacy really really happened during my internships um for wall street and my my job because i exposed to like a whole breadth of investments, um, EFTs and everything. So I started investing small. One of the one of the significant investments was my ESOP program. So the employee uh, purchase um, agreements that you would have with Merrill Lynch at the time. So you would invest in in stocks in Merrill, and then they would also match that as well. So you invested over a period of time. So weirdly enough, because I interned for four years they were invested after three years and your internships um count towards your vested so by the time i actually started full-time i was actually fully vested which was really which was a smart move Mm -hmm. um at least um so those were those investments ended up being very traditional stocks bonds 
Um, I think I was one of the early adopters of Robin Hood, um, uh, which was, uh, you know, the, the, trading platform it was really really small at that point and then e-trader so i was i was actually uh, exposed to those very and i think i was just really lucky because of the industry i was in but now i would say that my investment strategy has changed into more aligned with my passion so one i'm investing more in myself um mm-hmm. and into my own ex- experiences um uh, and and my own knowledge, intelligence, as you said, like I was using my brain. And so I have to make sure that I'm constantly investing in that thing that should be um, helping making me money. money. Yeah, helping to make money, right? And then the second one is also around art and, and uh, in a way that my parents were like investing in things that they could see. Um, I don't think I, you know, I think the environment has changed significantly around um, home purchasing and mm. as a means, as the only means of intergenerational wealth. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the kind of nine nine year legacy piece. So one of them is investing in in art, um, emerging artists who you know you kind of build. And I, I call myself an angel collector um, <laughs> of art. Um, I think Tosin uh, Duratoy, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. you know, also really helped helped um, help me kind of. Uh, figure that out as well because she's a big art collector and her family is as well um and so so there was a lot of those um investments and i think the third one that i did in was actually in i think it's more of the legacy building um which was uh, a trust um life insurance life insurance Oh my God, including repatriation of our remains. It's hard to think about your, your, the end of your life as you're trying to start your life. Um, But I had um, parents who really were mindful of that. I'll give you an example is that my mom has a eight page um, uh, uh, full, I think about it's 11 pages of instructions for her funeral, um, including (laughs) what she should be wearing. And um, that is such an odd Nigerian thing to do, but so progressive. An odd Nigerian thing to do. And but she sent so it to us on a round Tuesday. A round Tuesday. Like just, hey guys, nothing to worry about. Just sending you this so that you have a copy. The other copies with my lawyer. I was like, wow. Wait, what? Wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so um, a living trust, that is one thing. So that is also another thing that I, I am in the process of investing in is that you focus on living trust. So you can actually have, instead of going uh, through like the will and the probate, you have a full trust that you in, include the executors of that trust. So it just makes for, for um, a, a better, succinct kind of portfolio um, for your end of life or the or whether you're actually, you could just be incapacitated yeah. um, for whatever reason, right? Um, and it just allows for um, you to be able to, uh, all of your assets are within a particular trust. Uh, and so so those that's actually what I'm working on here. My parents have, that and um i see i saw the benefits of it especially when during covid where you're really mindful of like how fleeting life is yeah um and how much you just don't want to burden anyone beyond what you would ever want them to be in in situations and and also just yeah covid opened up my eyes when it came to investing in my health and in like you know if there's anything that ever happens to me that that my legacy and therefore like my family or whoever will come um after me will will be fine 
will be fine or at the very least won't be lumbered with any kind of liabilities. That's the biggest one as well. I love it. I, li- I like that your investment strategy seems to be tailored around your value system and you know what is important to you and the things that we worry about when it comes to money. Um, I re- I really like that um, approach. So it's not it's not oh everyone's buying X, so I'm going to go and start buying it. Um, it's more around you know your lifestyle goals, your um, you know your values, the things that you're passionate about and interested in. Um, it's very interesting. So what would you say that has been your most profitable investment? <laughs> um. I, this is so interesting because, like, when I when I think about this, automatically I think myself, <laughs> and but that sounds a bit arrogant, but it's actually the truth. I have been my most profitable investment. I have been the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I say I use my brain as my as the value that I put into any room. Me being who I am and having all of the experiences I had that were invested into me where you can, I feel like I, you could drop me anywhere in the world and I could con- I could connect with anyone. Um, my friends, like you guys are like, you, got, you're, you can pick up a conversation with anyone about anything. And I think the, the life experiences I've had, everything can put me in a position where I can, I have receipts for mm. what I can achieve, what I can do. Doesn't mean I don't get insecure, like for sure. You know, imposter syndrome is real. Do you but know, I, think I was about to say, Eniola, the next time, the next time you second get yourself, I'm going to tell you, girl, you have receipts. I'm going to use this line against you <laughs> the next time. The next time you're doing something and you, and you second guess yourself, that is what I'm going oh, to tell you. You have receipts. I'm going to have to have to tattoo that on my arm. <laughs> so if you guys see me with a tattoo, you tattoo just know that's what it is that's what it means in arabic or something <laughs> you have received yeah i think these um, are things that, that we yeah. have it's important for us to continue to remind ourselves because i think no matter how successful you become as an african woman i don't know for some reason there's still a lot of second guessing you know that's going on oh, yes and yeah, I, I don't I know why well, it's because the biggest crit- critic is yourself. Yeah. Probably mediated through all the voices you've heard throughout your, you know, 20, 30, 40 years on this, on this earth that yeah. people have been mediating. Someone was telling me that like um, a, a, a spiritual friend of mine um, had been talking about, you know, she was talking about like raising kids and she said, kids are actually the most um, purest of souls when they're born. And then they, they start... Um, you know, they start experiencing and navigating through life through these limiting views. And then that's what changes. So actually they are like children are actually much more resilient and much more closest to like their most spiritual purest form mm-hmm. of like self, self, everything, um, self-worth, self-care, self-awareness, uh, all of that. They're closest to their spiritual selves. And then the world kind of like beats it out of <laughs> that up. Fair enough. <laughs> and and yeah, and so that's what I'm like. You know, I have to remind myself that I am my best 
and most profitable investment, which means that I had to make sure my brain is healthy, my body is healthy. Like, you know, it's all of those things that tie into that so that I can be profitable to other people. And I don't mean just in terms of financially, but also like in terms of just, you know, when I like, I know when you've been in the room, RSA, like, (laughs) you know, like, I know when you what you what value you have provided to that and the the reason why is because you're you and you have invested into you so that it can be kind of shared with others and I think and also people cannot invest where they haven't sown so they can't reap what they haven't sown and so I yeah yeah and I think there's something to be said like in in talking about imposter syndrome and you know doubts the doubt that we um, feel and face. Um, I think there's something to be said for also having a strong sort of um, tribe or network that you can oh, girl, yes. that you can rely on. So when you're second guessing yourself, like you have like a sounding board to tell you what's real and what's not. Because um, I remember a, a few years ago, right? Me, you, Tosin. Chica. Oh yes, this was at the. This was. A, is this lucky? Um, yes, it was in. Um, so we had this. I remember the mind. Yeah, <laughs> we had this mastermind where we decided all the different things that we wanted to yeah. um, achieve. I don't know. Was it in 2018 or 20? Yes, it was. And Ashley was there, I think, as well. Ashley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it was just so, it was, it was amazing because every time I think back to the hours that we spent in that room, um, just sounding out each other's ideas and, you know, Mm -hmm. what we want to do and all of that, like, it's just amazing to watch everyone and see that they've since gone on, you know, to do different versions, you know, of that. And I, 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 I forgot about that. I didn't forget, but I, I forgot about how, how powerful that actually that was. was. Yep. And, and I how think... people don't get that every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind every time I think about it. And I think because at, the point of that uh, mastermind was we all had, we had, we'd reached certain points like in our um, careers and we all had these different ideas and we just wanted you know, to be able to sound them out, we we shared strategies. Oh, maybe you should try this. Maybe you should do this. Maybe mm. um, you should talk to this person. Maybe, and it, it was very interesting just watching everyone go on. You know, to execute. So I think it's extremely, you know, important to have pockets of um, friendships like that, pockets of um, tribes like that that you can. Mm that you can rely on for that, you know, kind of concrete support. Um, so you're not, yeah, doing I mean, that's what you're stuff. doing with yeah. the smart money tribe. I, I, it's it's cause money is not a thing that people are comfortable. I, I still am not comfortable. With it, right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's on purpose, right? Like society creates it so that women, um, no matter how successful you are or you, you, um, you may be, they always make it uncomfortable for you to talk about money because money has connects with power, it connects mm. with influence. It's a code word for a lot of things, access yeah. and all of these things. And so, and society, it, you know, I think comfortable ex- with women that have power and money. Yeah. Exactly. And value. And so 
so it was just one to your point about the tribe i think you are i mean you are exercising and doing exactly what like you it's like you do whatever you do exactly what is said on your label or i say so um <laughs> um it does exactly what it says on the box um and and i think that the idea of a tribe means there's accountability that you humble yourself mm -hmm. to learn and yeah. i really do surround myself by surround myself by people i'm intimidated by like like I do. I, I have to be surrounded by people who are doing better, or or doing differently, or or thinking differently, or I'm curating those people because it, it, you can't. We we, we can't li live in this world alone. And I th remember that session because um, I think I was on the phone because I was away at that time. Yeah. Um, so it was a video call for you. And, yeah. And you guys, you know, like the data data service in Niger, I had to <laughs> hold on, I think, for like six hours, you yes. know, we, we spent almost an hour for each person. We went back to it. We made people really accountable. We threw ideas out there. Um, and, and also there was a willingness to be open and vulnerable. I think that's yeah. the start, which was but like, hey, guys, I don't really know what I want to do here, but like I'm just going to put it out there and it was mm -hmm. phenomenal to just uh, to feel responsible for someone else's dream and help them like try to figure out what what are kind of the key steps with that and yeah, I, I just thought that was the first thing was for me is that in that room I knew that I was writing a second book but I was not clear on what that second book was going to be about yeah. in terms of that the theme was around friendship and tribe and i remember that it was in that room that i figured it out that it first clicked to me that i was like wow actually all this stuff you've been writing right is is pointing out is pointing to the fact that like you know our friendship circles should be our money circles like mm. our tribe affects the way that we spend the way that we earn the way that we invest um it was in that room i figured that out and then I remember saying, guys, so I'm turning the book into a TV series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God, it was. It a TV series. And you, I remember at that point, it still seemed a little crazy. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like a fully formed, um, you know, idea yet. And I also remember the W um, Collective that you and Chica um, wanted to do in Cape Town. Yeah. And then... And we did, we did, gosh, yes. Yep. And it connects in so many different ways. And this is the powerful thing, the convergence of people's dreams mm -hmm. and plans. Mm -hmm. That was, yes. And that was, we that was, I remember, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking through that time in Cape Town because it was September, I think, 2019. And yes. I I'd flown in to Cape Town the night before the event because I was speaking on a panel. Um, and I remember the morning of was when we started getting messages that women, like different people were leaving. So different people who were going to speak at the event were leaving because of that. Um, there was a xenophobic was, attack. Yeah. Yes. It was that, it was that, it was that year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember Nigerians and, yeah. yes, leaving and all of that. And I kept thinking, can I leave? And I was like, nope, I'm staying put because 
I remember when this idea was birthed and I, and I can't even imagine like Chica and Eniola planning this thing from Geneva, Nigeria, in Cape Town. Um, you know, like I can't even imagine what it would have taken to put all of it together. So I'm not going to be part of why it doesn't go, um, you know, according to plan. But oh, it, yeah. it was such a beautiful, powerful um event you know at the end of the day even with those obstacles and it just made me it was one of those things that I thought oh my god the power of you know having a tribe the power of having people show up for you the power of you know having an idea and literally just willing women to come together to make something happen like I that was one of my favorite events ever you're like this, you are a superstar. I mean, you are a superstar, but uh, but you have really stayed the course with your friends, but also just with your message. And so it just made it so easy for 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 people to connect. Especially, I mean, there were like riots happening outside. Oh. I mean, this was the position of like I think about a hundred, a hundred and fifty, even more than that. Um, women, young women, millennials, mm-hmm. and like you know, Gen Zers listening to like amazing women like women. you. I was I mean, so inspired. Like, connecting men. Anyway, I kept sitting in our room thinking, how am I even in this room? How am I in this room? Oh, with girl, bye. These, girl bye. With these like caliber of women. And you see that event even, <laughs> it, it opened up so many different things for me. One, I remember I spoke on a panel with, one of the partners at PwC in Ghana, I got a speaking engagement from your event, right? Because I met her yeah, at your yes. event. So I went wow, to maybe like yes. less than six months later, I was in, I, they flew me to Ghana to speak at, at an event. Um, that W Collective event, um, I met so many amazing women who have been so instrumental, you know, to my journey since then, who have become really close friends. Um, at your events, <laughs> so it was. Yes, I remember. Oh my so god, everything yes, just kind of came. You, you went back to Town, well, again, and and connected with a whole. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't even realize. Like, I think what you've touched on is not only like just having a tribe, but mm-hmm. being to being able to activate specific yeah. outcomes from that tribe yeah. as well. And yeah. I think that makes different between transactional um, friendships and tribe-orientated yeah. um, uh, friendships, right? Which is that we are communal. We're in this together. You may eat today. I will eat tomorrow. Like, do, like we will, but we generally agree. We know where we agree on and where we want to help each other and keep yeah. each other accountable. And and it's like, yeah, I think that that value creation as a tribe is like, oh, maybe we've so, figured out the so third. <laughs> <laughs> it's so amazing. But and I just love how we can leverage on each other's skills, each other's network. So what skills would you say that you've had to build to become, you know, a successful hey. entrepreneur and even all the other the side entrepreneurial hustles that you're like um mm. building right now? Um, COVID did a number on me in negative, but also mostly positive long-term um, means. Mm-hmm. One of which was, and it ties into the skill, 
integrity and consistency, um, the ability to stay the course. I learned that a lot from you. You are, geez, you are resilient. Like you were able to stay the course and you've been successful in staying that course of, you know, a clear mission, clear purpose, like you are in the zip code of your Nia, as I like to say. Like, oh so there's the Nia, which is the principle. One of the principles of Kwanzaa it means it means um, it means purpose in um, in Swahili in Kiswahili, and um, I always feel that when you're in your zone of genius or your zone of your purpose, um, you just need to be in the zone. And you, it means you still have questions. We still have all these ideas. But if you're consistent, like you're the gravitational pull of your purpose, like pulls you into the last stretch, like that last mile where you don't really know where this is going to take you. And I think that that's what has been successful for me is like not trying to get to the purpose, but like trying to get into the general vicinity of it and being consistent at it. And, and trying to stay the course. And I think because of that, it's built a certain level of integrity in your work. And it's something that I have really seen the value of when all else fails, COVID, insecurity, all sorts of stuff is like, well, if, if RSA is there, if Enyola's there, if Tosin's there, then I know that this is valuable for me to yeah. do. And like you think it was, your name, your name is very important. And I think that a skill is making sure that your name stands for something and mm -hmm. it stands for something that is in line with your values. I That's think, you know, I think I'm very big on that. Like I always think, what is, what is my legacy going to be? Like, so mm -hmm. if I die tomorrow, what are the things I've done that will live um, even when I'm not here anymore? But exactly. What has been your biggest money mistakes or your oh mistake or your biggest money failure because the thing is you know we don't talk about failure enough like we talk about success and yeah all of that um but what has been your biggest you know money mistake or failure well, you know something that you had to learn from hmm. <laughs> um i was i wasn't sure if i was gonna talk about this because it was it's you know, we talk about value, we talk about what we're worth, and we talk about, you know, being a strong black woman, all of those mm -hmm. things, right? Um, I think my biggest money failure happened in my 20s. I think for many women, this conversation about money and income inadvertently gets tied in if you, if let's say if you date men, um, inadvertently gets tied into relationships and when and where do you quote unquote settle down and how does money work in, in the relationship and what roles do you play? What does money play as a role of both your independence and then your codependence um, uh, with that person? And I think for me, the biggest mistake, money mistake I made was being in a long-term relationship with someone where I started, I started relying on that person uh, for our financial um, uh, security. Mm. And I don't actually know when that happened because I, it, I had never planned to do that. Mm. You know, I never experienced it, but I did <laughs> as a function of love or what I thought was a function of love, which was like, oh, he'll take, he's taking care of it. And he just, 
was taking care of things and I started not taking care of my own financial um, means. And we started, we were basically as close to financially, like like financially uh, interwoven yeah. than any possible married person could be. Yeah. Um, and I that is my biggest failure because your 20s is your time to be selfish, yeah. I think. And it's your time to really um, make uh, like mistakes, but like like really quick and fast, like quick and dirty mistakes. Um, and it's also I a agree. time for you to grow and to accumulate things, whether it's um, wisdom, discernment, money, all of those things. Because your you carbon footprint is very low, to be honest. Um, when you start getting into your 30s, that's when you start looking at like, you know, more expensive health insurance policies because you maybe wanted to get pregnant or any of those things, right? And so for me, it was relying on someone else for my financial um, stability, financial wherewithal. I took my foot off the gas and I did not pay attention to my own financial health. And when we broke up, it was devastating. And it wow. was even more devastating because of the financial burden it had on, on me. So, um, so you're dealing you with the end of a relationship. It difficult to disentangle yourself from your financial Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, years later, like dealing with like, you know, this one payment that wasn't paid that was, you know, lots of things like that. So it really affected both my credit, it affected a lot of things. And so I think that I was, I was very basic. I was, I was a basic bee at that time. Oh my God. You make a mistake that that many women make when it comes to love. (laughs) So there's no judgment here. I don't think anyone Mm -hmm. would judge you because we've all been there in one shape or form making a mistake with money that has to do with love. (laughs) That has to do with love, a love, yeah. lo- and uh, yes, and and but it doesn't mean that you can't have an a, a successful love money really? situation. But I think yeah. being really mindful of there is an approach I took as an individual to money, and there's an, and then there's also one that you negotiate with a partner about your um, approach as a couple with money, and those are two sometimes mutually exclusive but but interrelated um issues and and you need to make sure you're clear of what both of those are i love it so what was your first childhood memory of money Hmm. yes i do remember this (laughs) my first childhood memory (laughs) of money was wasn't allowed as a kid to um, to get chewing gum right Mm. um and uh, because, you know, it was bad for your teeth, blah, 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 blah. Um, my parents were a bit strict at, at, early on. So I, I remember being in like Tesco's and I must have been like five. And I just took the chewing gum. <laughs> like I stole the chewing gum because I wanted <laughs> I wanted this thing so badly. Hey, please don't get me off. Uh, I was five. Please. I was five. And I remember, and I remember my mom sending me to bed um, and because that was the only time that I would be left alone. I ended up chewing it after like I was sent to bed and chewing it, but I fell asleep and I, ch- it was juicy fruit and I put the whole thing in my mouth and um, the, all seven of them or five of them, whatever, chewed them, <laughs> fell asleep. 
this the the, the chewing gum ended up like in my hair and like oh across the God. bed. So when I woke up, my mom saw it all, right? And she was like, where did you get chewing gum? I was like, I got it from Tesco. She said, there's no way you could have got, got it from Tesco. You don't have any money. And I, was, <laughs> I remember she went back with me to, I had to cut out my hair, but like she went back with me to Tesco's um, and went to Tesco's to buy me chewing gum. Yeah, and said you never take get anything like this. You you have to pay it. And I think it was there was something that I learned about no matter how much you may want something, do it the right way. Have mm-hmm. a have a relationship with earning that and going and purchasing it. I know it was very early on, but that was my earliest memory of money I that really it is know. a front of getting what you want, and there are no shortcuts that you should and you should be be filled with integrity to do it and to also ask for what you want because <laughs> apparently i could have asked and apparently yeah, i would have got it, you know so when it so, comes to now that you're an adult when it comes to spending what are your guilty hey pleasures outside of chewing gum anyway guilty pleasures hey so it used to be somehow well, it's like, i mean like it was Somehow I feel like it's more about the reason why I'm going to block you on Instagram in the next couple of months. Yeah, now it's experiences. Ah, I do like a a good travel, a good Mm. jabba. I do like a good old jabba. Um, And now I try, I also, yeah, so travel even though it's COVID and then, um, and um, uh, mochi, is a guilty pleasure of buying mochi and um and then also mochi. art but i feel like what is mochi, mochi? this japanese um rice and ice cream <laughs> that i literally cannot I live without try this. girl try m-o-c-h-e-i it, it's killer but those are my guilty pleasures there's really experiences and art experiences as well now but it did used to be clothes and i have been I've been trying to um, deal with my addiction and Mm -hmm. it has been going well so far. So if you won the lottery and you won a million dollars, what would you splurge on and what would you invest in? There is a piece that I would invest. There's a piece of art that I love till this day since I was like 15 years old that I would definitely invest in. Um, It's called Isabella's Two Chairs. Mm. Uh, It's this beautiful piece. Um, so I would definitely spend, uh, 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 like, I don't know how much that, that, <laughs> that piece is probably, probably, I don't know, like 50 to a hundred thousand dollars now. Um, I would definitely get that one piece. Um, but the rest I would definitely invest, uh, as I said, like invest back in myself, my family, uh, pay off my student loans, um, uh, that they said that was good debt. So, Hey, there's that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I would just do everything that would be. I think I just stay the same. And also, let's be mindful that if you win the lottery and you won one million dollars, you're really only getting about five hundred thousand. So mm-hmm. let's be let's be honest about what's happening okay. because there's the bonus withhold uh, withholding. You're actually the first person who has brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> so I like so I love it. Me, I'm in Jebu woman. Jebu woman. So you know it's like let's just slow our roll there. No one million dollars. <laughs> 
really is. Hey, let's find out how much it really is. Um, so yeah, and then um, and then I'd also speak to a tax um, uh, an accountant and a tax accountant and be like, how, how where can I put this? Where can I be shoveling this money to to make this one stretch? But that's that would be it. Okay, so final question, and you're like, I love this conversation so much. But final question. I know that obviously you're an entrepreneur, you work for the World Economic Forum and you do all this amazing stuff, you know, with development. But what are the other things that you're doing on the side? Because I know that you're the co-founder of the New Nigerian and you're working on some other projects. So do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. So the New Nigerian is a collective. I started on the app Clubhouse dropping us um, last year during um, both COVID and NSARS and um, it was really just to bring together community. It's now about 40,000 people um, who have self-selected to look at um, Nigeria, the new Nigerian. What does it take? What is that mindset? Talking about issues that have been often taboo, everything from um, understanding yourself and self-actualization to polyamory to divorce to everything that is on topic. Mm -hmm. Better understand and redefine uh, being Nigerian on our own terms. And then also what is that new Nigeria that we want as an extension of those values that we care about. And so we've just been really blessed to be able to curate this community and, and to provide programming and, and like collective action with the group as well. Um, and so we're in kind of a second phase where we are look, um, working with really great partners like um, Hive, Sikoko and others um, to really bring the kind of programming we want, but also um, create um, even more community um, uh, programs that connect brands and um, and causes with that community to be able to support. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited about that. I've got a lot of creative things that are coming up um, that I that hopefully you know keep the space open. Um, you can follow my my uh, travels and everything at Eniola Mafe. Yeah, I think it's just at Eniola Mafe on pretty much every social media channel. Um, and yeah, I just I'm just to just be continue to be happy and 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 grateful uh, at, at, at the end of the day. I love it. I'm so excited for this interview to air because I think there are going to be a lot of people who learn from it. Um, and this is a Pretty different cool type of journey that, you know, is not very typical for most African women. And it's just been beautiful to watch. So thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I wish you luck in everything i loved this this is so and thank you i'm so honored to be considered um for this i don't even think it's not even an interview we're just just in um so <laughs> I know, thank right? you and um you know i'm, I'm whenever you need it uh, i'm i'm right there like how do we support um you're doing like you're doing the heavens work for sure thank you, thank um, you so much i appreciate it Thank you for listening to this episode of the Smart Money Tribe podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm super excited about creating financial content for African millennial women who want to live a fabulous life, but also want to learn how to find the balance between spending on their lifestyle needs and building assets that could protect their financial futures. 